celebrating success, learning from legends, and growing poppies. This is Talk Poppy Talk with Grace Lewis. Kia ora and welcome Dr. Graham Turner to Tall Poppy Talk. He has spent the past 25 plus years specializing in coach and athlete development, holding a PhD in talent development and sport and works with the Australian Institute of Sport as a performance pathway systems leader. He is an athlete development consultant at AIS. He's an author, which we'll really dive into, speaker, storyteller, and has an extensive background in sport with roles including coaching, whether that's football, strength and conditioning, Olympic weightlifting, uh, as a physiotherapist, a teacher, a physical preparation and injury management, consultant, sports science lead. He's a lecturer and an academic, and he is a UK SCA founding member and director on the inaugural board, one of his many positions on review panels in the UK and the US. Graham has worked within high-performance sport institutions across the globe and across many high-performance sports, shaping systems and athletes to progress talent into medal-winning performances. He leads through principled interaction, where respect is mutual, trust is established, and commitment is reciprocated, which is demonstrated in his most recent publication, The Young Athlete's Perspective, Talent Development Stories, What They Want and Need. So Graham, GT, there is a lot to dive into. I was going from physio to um, academic to this, but we're going to dive into hopefully quite a bit of it today. Welcome. My first question is where and how are you today? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. And, and it's great to be here. Thanks for the intro. I'm, I was sitting there thinking, yeah, who, who's that guy um, that you're introducing? It's an interesting journey. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm in uh, Melbourne in Australia, which is where I live now um, in the in the winter, um, which I don't enjoy so much in Melbourne, but uh, I've gone soft, really. Being an Englishman, I should be used to it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, because originally from England, you can hear that. How long have you been in Australia? Oh, it's about eight eight years now. Yeah, we just took a crazy decision, my family and I, to let's go somewhere different and try something different with no jobs to go to. Yeah, that's another story in itself. Yeah, it is. And actually, near the end, I want to ask about that because that's very admirable to just chase after it. And I think a lot of listeners, myself, we want to kind of hear, like, how does someone do that and how do they land where they land? So we'll, we'll get into there. And I could have asked all about your different roles, but we would spend an hour talking about that. So I want to focus on your most recent accomplishment, which is the publication, The Young Athlete's Perspective, Talent Development Stories, What They Want and Need. And it features six stories told by young athletes on their own individual experiences and perspective within talent development. So did your intention of the book's purpose change from the inception to the final product publication yeah it's a great question um i never set out to write a book that's the the first part i guess um i had some advice everyone thinks they've got a book inside them but for most people that's probably where it should stay um but uh what did happen was yeah i previously worked in academia and things have changed you know when i first got a job in academia i was coming from a coaching and a teaching background um, so you didn't need a PhD if you wanted to work at a university in those days. There was a, a definitely um, people recognized the experience that you got and were really interested in you contributing that. But times change. You've got to adapt. 
and definitely to have currency you needed to have the doctorate so yeah there's a health warning with a doctorate like really think carefully about if you want to do one um because you you need you need to uh, be committed because it's hard slog you know um i never would have thought that i'd have done one but anyway the, the the kind of purpose that i had the why that i had was i'd worked with young people for a long time um and i, I philosophically i'd got to a different stage where i thought you know what there's all these experts they've got all these great intentions they're giving their best advice to young people about what they should do how they should do it when they should do it what they need where to go but you know how well do we understand what it's like to be that young person and would it actually help us to work with them if we were on the same page and we had a bit more insight into the challenges that they were dealing with and that they weren't necessarily sharing with us so that was the intention for the PhD. So I set out, did that. That was just, again, we can talk about the way that works, but um, I completed the PhD. And then I just had a bit of a nagging problem, which was, you know, if I publish this in peer reviewed journal articles, I need to reduce the stories. And the other thing was like, who reads a PhD? No one, no one wants to read a PhD, right? Let's just be clear. If you do one, no one's going to read it. If you might get a few people who read your journal articles, but what's the audience you're trying to influence? Um, par most parents aren't going to read journal articles. Most coaches I know, don't get me wrong, there's some highly scientific coaches, um, but most parents I know aren't trawling the journals. Um, so how do you do that? If, like if, if there's a real belief that you've done something here um, that could have a positive impact on the way that young people are, are developed, What's the best way to do it? So the nagging thing was I, I need to find a user-friendly way to get this information out. So I sat on it for a little bit. Then I started to have a little look at self-publishing. So ironically, after doing all the academic work, I then hired an editor to help me to make my work not academic anymore. The book needed to be the young people's words. It needed to be their voice. That needed to be the, the prominent part. I did think that there was an opportunity here to take some of the themes to help give some insight to people who are reading and people who are supporting those athletes. So that's parents and coaches, give some insights into them to what might be my key takeaways, my key, my key insights from this work. So yeah, that that's that was the intention. Took a little, took a bit of a while to to get it all out there, but um, yeah, it's out there now. The young athletes' perspective and. Yeah, I've got some good feedback of it. Yesterday was the first person I saw on Twitter who I don't know who said it's brilliant. Um, so I, I was really chuffed with that. <laughs> I love that you said it's almost like making it digestible because you've done all that academia, but what good is it if it's not being read and understood kind of by the masses and the people you're interacting with? And a lot of coaches might have the, you know, the privilege of doing it full time, so might have time to commit to it, but heaps of people even just parents or um friends of someone who's an athlete want to know like oh well what is it like for them and that's my lead question of that is why is it important to hear the athlete's perspective and give them that light yeah well the way i think about this is when we start off with a young athlete you know every young every young person who plays sport does it because they've got a team and they've got an interest in the sport and they look at these people and think yeah I'd like to be doing that one day. I'd like to be that person. 
Now, of course, they don't all go that way, but a fair few go that way, and particularly um, in Australia with Brisbane 2032 plus and on the horizon, then there's a big push to encourage young people um, to pursue their dream. You, what you don't want to do is say, oh, do you know what the odds are? They're really stacked against you. You've got, you, you're not really probably going to do this. What you want to do is be really positive. You want to be enthusiastic and support them. But you've got to find the balance with that. And so that's what I've tried to do um, in the book to demonstrate that, yeah, um, we can support young people. They can pursue their dreams. But let's keep it in perspective. Let's make sure that it's holistic. Let's make sure that we haven't got all the eggs in one basket because most, most of those young people, let, let's celebrate the, the success that they have. Let's not treat um, the podium as the be all and the end all for everybody. Um, celebrate the success on the way. Let's keep it in perspective. Make sure it's not all about sport. Let's celebrate time with friends, with family, with education, with employment. Oh, I love that. That's actually part of my tagline for the Tall Poppy Talk podcast is celebrating success and having been in the athlete perspective I found when I came to the U.S. I was all athlete whereas in New Zealand it was like oh yeah Grace Rose but she also works at the pharmacy and does this but you come here and that becomes the entire identity so if I'm not doing well at rowing well then I'm not doing well because that's the only thing so I like that holistic approach and to widen the identity associated with an athlete that they're more than just that so yeah obviously things go great that's awesome but being a little bit realistic that they might not always go great or maybe they will but not having it be the be all end all is going to help everyone in the equation I think that's what I've learned along the way um you know there's one there's one thing that's guaranteed for every for every athlete that's that they will exit at some point and so uh, you never know when that's going to be so let's let's just make sure that we enjoy the ride and um, we've got options. Yes. Grace Prendercast, who I had on the podcast, um, Olympic champion rower, and that was just at Tokyo, and she got a gold and a silver, right? And she said, I physically could have pursued Paris, and we probably would have done well, but I wanted to see what else I was good at because she'd spent her whole 20s ever since high school rowing, and then she's like, well, what else am I good at? I don't know, because I've never tried. So that was like, oh, really exciting. Because a lot of people might look at someone who's at the elite, like literally Olympic champ and think, oh, surely that's what you want to keep doing. And she's like, no, great, amazing. What else am I capable of? So I thought that aligns with what you said of like, yeah, yeah, they will exit at some stage and you want to make sure that they're ready to embrace that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The Australian Institute of Sport is responsible for leading and enabling a united high-performance system that supports Australian athletes to achieve podium success. I took that directly from AIS, but I want to know, in your role within AIS, what does success look like? Yeah, well, my role specifically is in performance pathways. So current cycle of those athletes and those coaches working towards the next Olympics. Um, so that's Paris. Um, in my role, it's about future cycle. So I'm looking at that cohort of athletes that are heading to, heading to LA or heading to Brisbane. Um, what can we do about their specific development from a system level? How can we support sports? Um, so it's very much age and stage development. Um, we'll take a systematic view. We'll be very much evidence-based. We'll look at the profile of the sports and the athletes. 
and see where we can put in systemic interventions. So one of the things that I've recently been focusing on, for example, is the adolescent athlete with particular age and stage requirements for them. We've got some great work done in our country by, by swimming, who obviously are a really successful sport at the Olympics. You know, that's not by chance, that's, that's by design. Um, and they've done a, a real longitudinal piece where they've been looking at assessing and monitoring the growth and maturation. So biological status of their athletes, but also relative age and how, when they look at the young athlete, when they may be at national championships, they're looking at how these athletes are performing, how they can factor in um, the difference between an early maturer compared to a late maturer, and what that means when they're thinking about selection. Yeah, I'm just thinking from a layperson looking in, like are there some people who are 15 who look like they're 24, right? Like they're, they're built, they're set. Yeah. And there's some who suddenly from 15 to 16 to 17, they grow up. So being able to identify that potential and what's still to come. And I especially feel like adolescents in Australia, given Brisbane 2032, what that's, uh, what year is it? Um, okay, it's eight years. So that's the group you're looking at who are probably going to be prime for the Olympic Games. Yeah, well, that's the point. I suppose I should be clear then. I'm not, I definitely don't want to take any credit for the work that Swoon Australia have done. That's, <laughs> they've got a great lead there, Gary Barclay, and before him, Jamie Salter, and the whole organisation have been doing a fantastic, fantastic job with, with Steve Copley at um, Sydney University. But what I'm trying to do at system level is leverage the knowledge and the system, the systematic way they, they've employed to see what we can do with other sports. So what they've done with swimming, and it's a little easier for a sport that's measured in centimetres, grams or seconds. They can look at um, all the under 15s over a particular um, swimming stroke in a particular distance. They'll take the times. At the same time, they've been assessing peak high velocity. So what they have been able to do is come up with an algorithm that will work out a corrective adjustment. So if I'm a relatively younger 15 year old compared to the relatively older ones in the race, I might have come fifth in that race, but the corrective adjustment will equalize us with regard to our biological maturation. And then it'll demonstrate that actually, although I came fifth, if I was equal in terms of my maturity status, I could perhaps have been the one who, who won that race. So what that enables the coaches and the, the parents and the athletes to understand is, now, actually, um, there are different reasons for why we may be selecting someone over someone else. It, you know, you may you may be um, doing really well, but actually you need to recognize this is going to get hard for you because you're ahead of others in terms of your strength and power. And someone who may be a little bit behind, um, they get the information that, no, actually, you're doing really well technically. And as soon as the growth spurt kicks in, you're going to get a kick from that and that's going to enable you to do well. So what we're just looking at is, Again, it's very specific, you see. Um, if we want to look at, well, what does that mean for, for athletes who are going to be at Brisbane? Then there's a short window there because we're talking about the 11-year-olds now. Because if we want to get ahead of the growth and maturation curve, we've got to start before that growth spurt kicks in. But that then means we're really focusing in on sports that are likely to have athletes who could be in finals at 20 years of age. Because if they need to be 24 then we, we've missed the ability to monitor that growth and maturation for them. So yeah, we're just having a, a close look at that now to see how that might benefit us.
so fascinating. Um, I think you could pour over that and no doubt do for hours looking at different things. And that reminded me of, I know for, um, again, rowing selection in New Zealand, there's like a clause at the end of every trials, like um, selectors have discretion to decide, right? So even like you said, you might come first, but with all the other factors in, oh, you actually kind of come second or third. So you have worked with so many sports. Like I mentioned football, soccer for our US listeners, um, gymnastics, weightlifting, netball, AFL, cricket, triathlon, rugby league, hockey, like more. And I know that there's inherently a lot of differences in training strategies based upon, you know, there's technical, tactical differences. However, what are the areas that you'll be able to anticipate similarities present across all sports and maybe those athletes or people involved what are the things that you're like okay that's going to be similar across everyone yeah okay I guess my 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 point of difference is I'm very much evidence-based but I'm always looking to find a sweet spot um, as to what evidence can we take that's going to be useful for sports in, in a way that um, is relevant to them and they'll buy into so with regards to athlete development and the coaching We've got three professional dom- domains. We've, we've got the individual um, understanding themselves, the ability to reflect um, and the ability, the ability to set targets and monitor their own growth. Then we've got the ability to work with others. Um, stakeholder engagement is a really big part of my role with different NSOs, uh, staff at all three different levels. And then the final one is the professional knowledge. So that's where um, the sports science comes in, the pedagogy, um, the ability to, to look at profiling and understand different athlete trajectories. So I, I tend to look for things from the science. Uh, and again, just like, I guess, with the principle of the book, how can I find a way to introduce this and package it up to, to bring it to people? So the example I've just given you, age and stage athlete development, I've explained to you how if we want to look at nine or 10 years forwards, then that's going to cut down for us a number of the sports that we focus on because we're talking about the 11 year olds now that can be in the finals at 20. It doesn't mean that it's not important for all the sports to look at growth and maturation, but if we want to be targeted and focused, that will send us in a particular way. And one of the other things that I'm finding interesting as well now is people are talking about the effect of COVID on skill acquisition and talking about they're seeing a gap with athletes. And again, that's not just skill acquisition. That's also related to the emotional maturity of athletes who perhaps would have been starting to travel earlier, would have been starting to go to to camps, whether that be state-based or national, and haven't had that exposure and that experience. So you you start to look at the under-17 age group, for example, where I talk to sports and they're telling me that we're seeing a difference here with the fundamental skills. We would expect to see athletes be able to do things, and we think it's attributable to COVID. Whereas when we look at the 19s, we don't see the same issue. And maybe it's because there was a real couple of years that were fundamental to this development that weren't the same. So for me, it's it's looking for trends at system level and then looking at interventions that sports and their people are saying, yeah, this is important. We'd like to collaborate around this. If you want, again, talking holistic, if we go psychosocial, you know, the adventure sports, they've got different kind of challenges. There's might be the social media stuff. Um, so I'm looking to see where can we learn. Really interesting for me. I was in the US only about a month ago 
listening to um, how it's changed since the NCAA allowed the athletes to use their image rights. Um, and what I see there is the way that companies are working really hard to engage with athletes and to support them. And ironically, I see that as a competitive advantage for the US because now you've got athletes who have got professionals looking to help them to, to generate new income streams. They're going to help them with their training. Um, and they've got that real motivation because they're allowed now, there's been that rule change. Um, and the things that, that are going on with the, the athlete portal, like I'm just reading about that, thinking it like it's crazy, you know, people saying, oh yeah, I thought I'd put my name in the portal just to see what my, my, my options might be. And all of a sudden I've got 50 coaches following me on Twitter, checking me out. So yeah, it's really interesting to look at what's going on in the US and to think, oh yeah, there's a real move there with social media and, and getting athletes really savvy about that. We haven't got the same move in the, in the Southern Hemisphere. So how can we try and make sure that our athletes don't get left behind with regards to their ability with social media? But also, of course, how can we make sure that that's not going to take them off track and start to become a distraction? And so I look at their name, image and likeness as they're building a brand. But part of that witnessing, because I went through NIL when it became, I was still at school, college, when it flipped over. And you lose some of that team aspect because players know if they're not getting something on the team they're at now, the college, I'll enter the transfer portal. Now I'm having conversations with other places. And so that's something that the Southern Hemisphere will hold on to, I think, a lot stronger is the loyalty to stick through the ups and the downs. Whereas... Yeah, there's competitive advantage because you've got resources, but some of those intangibles are being traded because, you know, money talks and opportunity talks. So it's like, oh, I'm going to go towards that now and maybe fostering a bit more of a selfish approach. Not selfish, eh, it's kind of the right word, but like individual as opposed to, well, what's going to benefit my team? So that's just a little food for thought that I've noticed on this side. It's like, oh, I wonder what the negatives are going to be of that regarding team loyalty as opposed to name image and likeness going that way yeah that's a great point that is a great point because i've had the conversation previously when i worked in gymnastics about um whether they were going to send a team or individuals to competition and the coach was really really pushing hard on the fact that look at the the countries that do well they're the countries that send teams and so whether whether you can quantify cause and effect or correlation um, you do see the evidence, you know, in, in different sports. They're the ones that have got the team. So they've got depth and they've got that connection that you talk about. Whereas countries who are sending individuals to different competitions, generally they're yeah, one-offs and they haven't got that depth and they're not able to bring through those consistent results. Yeah, not as willing to maybe share it with other people because if you're only sending one, why on earth would I tell you my inside tips on how to handle the pressure if you're going to take over from me? Um, I did want to quickly ask, you used a word that I didn't know when you were talking about going back to the uh, individual ability to work with others and then the professional knowledge. It's kind of sounded like uh, pedagogy, prodigy. Oh, pedagogy. What is that? So that, that's the, the science behind learning. <laughs> um if you were to it, it's a common word used by teachers i, I originally was a, a school teacher so my first um four year honors degree was in learning how to teach in sport so yeah um ironically pedagogy it's the, the ped it's like um, pediatrics in medicine 
So the PED actually refers to children, young people. People routinely use pedagogy when they're talking about adults as well, but in actual fact, I'll teach you another new word. The word that they should be using for that is andragogy. So yeah, there you go. Thank you. That's quite ironic that that's what that means. Um, I could also dive into your comments about COVID and the impact on technical skill. And I want to, but I will keep moving because we have some other questions. But yeah, that's a lot of food for thought. And I do think we'll see um, social science, science things come out about that because people had to stay inside. And we'll actually see the disparity between the countries that were able to provide training facilities, maybe had the finances to fund testing and keep people training and competing versus those who didn't. Like I know, um, again, New Zealand Ryan was able to have really high class regattas against each other because there's such a, same way Australia has intense swimming. I bet they could keep swim meets between all of them at high class level versus those countries that didn't um, will probably notice the flow on effect of that. Do you have any, I got asked, do you have any comment on that? Yeah, it's, it has invited some reflection because there's, I believe in, in Australia, there's the belief, and I'm sure it'd be the same in New Zealand, that um, international competition exposure is really important. Um, and that's difficult because of um, the proximity, the geography, you know, the distance has to be traveled and the, the expense. So there's always a, a balancing act there for the sporting body um, but when sports weren't able to do that then they're encouraged to look at their own training environments so their daily performance environments and look at how they can mani manipulate um, constraints there to see how, how can we create some of the type conditions and ironically without the ability to travel as they would have preferred there were some pretty good results by Australia at, at the Tokyo Olympics still so it's invited people to consider their not just in relation to international competition exposure, but also I think in, in relation to load. Um, and we can look at that physically. We can also look at that in relation to the psychological nature of load, you know, the stress of being away from uh, being away from home, if you've got family and traveling. So yeah, I don't know where that'll end up, but definitely people have um, raised the question of, you know, routinely we've said that we need to keep traveling, but actually do we need to as much as we thought? Yeah. Oh, true such a different experience if you're 21 and you just kind of miss your parents and your mates versus i don't know 30 whatever you are and you've got kids and dependents at home that experience yeah. of traveling um how that will impact you we've talked a lot about elite and high performance medal winning performances how do you define high performance well in a, in a system that i work in high performance is is podium outcomes but of course my KPIs aren't podium outcomes because I'm working with future cycle athletes. So then it, it's about, well, how, how well can we do things? How can we keep moving forwards? You know, we, we've got the aspiration to be world's best in our work as well as our outcomes. So yeah, like a good coach, we'll look at, we'll look at a process, focus on a process. Where can we go? What can we learn from different places in the world to make sure that we're, we're pushing ahead ourselves, we're checking and challenging our work so yeah that's that's it really i just go back to original principles from being a being a coach focus on a process um how well can you do what you're doing how can you keep trying to be better every day i love that and yeah being process driven if at the end of the day someone beats you you just have to tip your cap and you're like well damn they must be doing good because i was so focused on my process um and use that as inspiration instead of 
I'm doing something wrong. I think sometimes if you see others succeeding and you have been really committed to your process and doing the process at a um, high performing level, then you just want to talk to them and ask what on earth they're doing to, to get those outcomes to beat you. Oh, wonderful. Now, this question I ask everyone, it's the th thread that runs through the podcast and why I do it. And I'm interested because you are from England. Now you're in Australia. You've probably had a mix of experiences, but in your own words, what is tall poppy syndrome and have you experienced or observed it? Well, I've got to tell you that I don't feel that I have experienced it because I don't feel like I'm a tall poppy or I, or I ever, ever have been. But yeah, my understanding of it would be people who, who are successful um, and then start to be criticized for, this, for the success that they've had. And when I thought about this, it was interesting because I actually feel this happens to people who have been highly successful but then there starts to be, like for most of us, there starts to be things that aren't going so well. And so it gives people the opportunity then to start firing shots at them. And I, I, don't, I don't know why. I don't know why that tends to be a trait of human behavior. Um, I guess it's more about people's self, own self-worth, really, that they feel that they, they've got to um, criticize others. But yeah, I... Ironically, the only thing that I think resonates with me when I thought about this was when I was looking at publishing a book, I was a little bit nervous about that in relation to people wanting to fire shots at the book and thinking, well, who are you? You know, what do you know about it? What about this? We don't agree with that. Um, so that was one thing that I had in the back of my mind, again, not regarding myself as a tall poppy, but thinking that actually putting a book out there is something for people to disagree with, perhaps. Um, what I'm really clear on is you can't disagree with the young people's experience and what they think about it, you know, um, that's their perception, that's their reality. So that's what gave me the, the confidence. Um, and also, I spent a bit of time, I went to a, um, a workshop, it was a two day workshop in Melbourne from a guy who makes his money by going around the world, encouraging people to write books and, and using his company to help them. I was sitting in this workshop with a lot of other people, um, everyday people, everyone thinks they've got a book inside them. He was encouraging them to write it if they paid him to help them. And when I started asking questions about, yeah, well, you know, coming from the academic side of thinking, well, you know, do you need the evidence? You know, what, you know, cause, all the books that you're doing, they haven't really got references in or anything. And he said to me, and I hope this isn't the case, but it kind of brought me back down to earth. He said, look, most people who buy your book, they're not even going to read it. <laughs> uh, so I don't know how true that is, but he seems to believe it. Um, and his view was, well, let's be really clear. You're not going to make any money off a book. So the best um, idea for a book is to use it as a marketing tool. His idea was if you've got a business, and you're trying to generate recognition of yourself and what you can offer people, a book is a good way to build that brand. Because again, he said, you know, what does author stand for? Well, it stands, it's, it's the, the, the beginning of the word authority. So just because you write a book, so people, people will think that you know um, what you're talking about. This is what he was saying to the whole audience. Like it was a bit unreal for me. But yeah, I went to that workshop and... Uh, it was good. He's really good at marketing. This guy goes on stage with Tony Robbins. 
you know, the yeah. guy who does all the motivational speaking. So he was really good at selling himself, selling the dream, write a book. You can be generating great work for your business. So I'm really clear. I'm not trying to generate any work for my business. Um, I've got a great job at the IS. Um, I haven't really got time to uh, be working outside of that. But again, I, got, I went back to the why of, I did the book. And that's because I thought, actually, there's a purpose here in relation to supporting, supporting young people. In terms of coming back to your point about the, the tall poppy syndrome, because there, there are some people out there on Twitter, aren't they, who are, who are quick to fire off at things. Who knows? I'm sure there, a few people will disagree with, with things that are in the book. Um, but that's probably as close that I get to being tall poppy, I think. What was your response to getting feedback from someone you didn't know? Yeah, well, here's the funny thing. Because I published as an academic before in peer-reviewed journal articles. And what happens is they never say it's great. They always come back and say, don't agree with this. Where's the evidence? You need to change this. You need to rewrite that, that part. Okay. So that was my previous experience. And then with this book, I've got some people who um, I have a lot of confidence in their opinion in terms of their track record. So I decided to go out first to get some testimonials. So I asked for testimonials. And of course, these are people who I've got connection with. Not, I wouldn't say my best friends, um, but people, again, whose opinion I respect. Um, and they came back and they were, they're complimentary. And I thought, oh, this is, this is, this is different. You know, this is very different to peer review. People saying, yeah, there's, this is good stuff. And they, didn't, and they didn't tell me to change anything. So, of course, it, it's, um, I get it. If you ask someone for a testimonial, then they get that the, the, the remit is, oh, well, come back and say what you think. I'm pretty confident that those people I asked, if they didn't think it was right and they didn't agree, they would, they would have said, no, thanks, I'd rather not do that. And then, of course, again, I haven't got a business. I've got no website. I've got no stall. I've got no bookshop. So for me, it was just I'll put it on a couple of socials. And then, of course, you get, you, you get the people who you know saying, oh, yeah, really good. I'll, I'll get the book. I'll get the book. So yeah, this was the first person who, someone who I knew had bought the book, he, he put something on it about Twitter and then someone else had seen it um, and then put the answer on. I thought, yeah, that's the first person who I don't know who's actually said that they think there's something good in it. So that was kind of a new test for me. Of course, I, again, um, I don't do a lot of activity on Twitter. So I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm confident that I could go on today and someone could tell me it's not very good. <laughs> um but you know we'll we'll see what i like and what i'm observing is you seem like a very logical person that's why you have a phd because there's a rhyme and a reason and peer-reviewed things are subject to a lot of analysis what i think is cool about what you do is you are working with young people who are working really hard trying to achieve something so i'm getting these hints of like you're almost protective right? Because if they're going to, someone's going to critique the book, they're critiquing these six young individuals who you know are good people who are working hard. So you're not even defensive of yourself. It would be like, you can't come at them because you're objectively looking at them thinking those are great people. Is that a little part of it? Well, yeah, I, I'm really grateful to those athletes for contributing that information. And yeah, you know, the thing about individual experiences is it's unique and so people could definitely um have a look at it and think no i don't agree with that but i go back to well you, you can't agree with someone's disagree with someone's experience that's that's how it seemed to them 
Um, and the big thing that came out of the book was, what's the essence of talent development experience for young people? Well, it's the way they feel they've been treated by the adults who control the program. So it reinforces that challenge with regards to the young person, the adult and the hierarchy and the need for having genuine relationships so that we can work together. So I'm confident of the messages. I'm sure that if I'd written a book years earlier, it wouldn't have the same balance. It wouldn't have the same holistic view. It would be about this is what you need to do to be a talented athlete. Now I've got, I'm more retrospective. I'm more understanding of the non-linear nature of the journey. And, and actually you got to be careful, you know, you got to be really careful because yeah, it's, if people are aspiring, then we need to push them and we're pushing young people. Um, how far can you go physically? How far can you go psychologically? So, you know, we, we're taking them and as, as far as they want to be pushed, but there's, there's danger there and there's risks to young people. So um, yeah, that's why I think I've, it's good timing for me to have done it when I'm older because I've got a got a more balanced view. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. And having six different people as well is important because um, when you're up and coming, especially, or you're trying to help or support a different athlete, probably the worst thing you can tell them is do A, B, and C and you'll get D because if you're taking that off someone else's module, um, someone else's journey and process, you're not factoring in the variables that are unique to that person. So I might get distraught, like, oh, well, I did this and I didn't get that, but that person did. It's like, oh, well, we're all unique. And that's the key word that keeps coming up, I think, through the testimonials or reading through what I found online with your book is it is the unique individual experience. And sometimes the same system and all these different experiences can happen within it. I think that's important to emphasize. Yeah, for sure. And I wanted to give a range of experiences. So multi-sport, male, female, um, and even the one sport that I threw in. And originally this, this person wasn't invited because when the invites went out, the person who sent them didn't think that this sport was one that should be included. But this was a, a young person who was trialing for the national team to go to the World Junior Championships in the sport of angling. Yeah, a bit of diversity, you know. Um, his story is called Fishing in the Dark. He tells how... He got all the information about the trials. And um, so he was traveling to practice. So he got to know the lake. And then all of a sudden on the day of the trial, they changed the lake. That really threw him, you know? <laughs> As it would, yeah. Yeah, yeah. in terms of the conditions of what he practiced for and all the, like, I, I don't know anything about fishing. You know, I'm just learning. What's it like for you? And <laughs> um, he's talking about, well, all your rigs, you know, you, you know the depth and you know the conditions, you know what kind of fish are there. So he had all this practice and then he talks us through the trial and he's, he's there five hours on the bank just fishing and he's got the selectors standing behind him, watching him, not saying a word to him. You don't know what they're thinking. You're thinking, oh, they're watching me. That must be a good thing. But then he's still watching me. Perhaps that's a bad thing. Like, what's he looking for? They never talk to you. Um, so, yeah, that's fishing in the dark, you know? <laughs> oh, that sounds very fascinating. Yeah, they'd be like telling um, a runner, we're going to, change a uh, cross-country runner we're going to change the course or a dancer yeah. let me actually swap out your shoes you're like I'm used to that or they you know all these things we mentioned at the beginning so coming full circle you are someone who's explored and you've traveled around a lot different opportunities and taking risks it's leaded sorry it's led to a brilliant trajectory from your first football coaching gig to 
Australian Institute of Sport now with a PhD and you're a published author. When I'm looking back at like retrospectively your journey, I'm like, oh, that's a clear thread. He's built this experience. He's here. And I have to wonder how much was pre-planned or more opportunistic. I'm coming from someone who um, I look, I'm looking forward and I'm like, I have no idea, but it feels like you had it all together. So do you have any guiding principles or values that have helped you in your decision-making? Yeah, well, the first thing to say is got a really good resume writer who makes it look like um, it was planned. There was absolutely no plan whatsoever, but there's an approach. So there's an approach to learning. So I left school at 16 with no qualifications, no intention of ever doing any further study. And the only thing that I knew was I liked sport. So what I realized is um, I'm a good learner. I let the learning journey take me in different directions. Sometimes that's good. It'll, it'll present opportunities that you weren't expecting. Sometimes it's not so good because you might go one step back before you can go two steps forward again. But it's the same with every, everybody. Um, if you look at the evidence base for the best athletes, the academic term is self-regulation. So it's the ability to keep learning. So of course, athletes have got to be able to do that. Coaches have got to be able to do that. And I realized what I've, I'm, I'm able to keep learning. And I think about that quote, you know, I'm, I'm not cleverer than other people. I just stick with things longer. People talk about curiosity and I don't talk about curiosity. I say I'm a hunter. Um, so I, it, once I lock on, once I've locked on, I'm going, I'm going after this um, and I'm sticking with it. And I don't know where it'll take me, but I'll finish it, you know? And sometimes it'll take me longer than perhaps it should. Sometimes other people will do things a lot quicker than me, but I'll definitely finish it. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's been it really. That's why I've gone different ways. Um, started off in football. I was never an elite athlete as a soccer player. So yeah, I was a coach, but then there was, I saw that there was the opportunity to go a different way in professional soccer. Um, because most of the people who got the coaching jobs were going to be the ex-players. That's where I went into physiotherapy. I was in physiotherapy and then there was the opportunity where the UK were looking at how can we quality assure the strength and condition association. So there's the opportunity to go into athletic preparation. I've always been interested in how can I work with different sports. So with the opportunity to go for um, work in university. And one of the things that I realized is I've taken risks. Um, so I've taken a number of one-year contracts. So with no guarantees at the end of them. Well, for some, the only guarantee was you won't get kept on at the end. So that gives you an opportunity because there's a lot of people who won't go for them because that's going to threaten their financial sustainability. And don't get me wrong. I'm not a person with a load of money in the bank who could take the risk. I was just taking it and being stupid. <laughs> so yeah, moved countries, spent time away from my family. And you know, people, people do this, but again, don't be, don't wait for the knock, be the knocker, look for the opportunity. That's kind of the approach. So yeah, it hasn't been a plan. It's been an approach. I look at where I work now at the Australian Institute of Sport. I came to Australia without a job. I took a risk. I went for a one-year contract to work in Darwin at the Northern Territory Institute. That was a fantastic opportunity there. Learn that was I call that rehab because that was after my PhD. So um, it took me back down to earth. Let's let's work with real people on the ground who've got no resources, but have got but have got a great attitude, great skill, great people. 
saw a job after that in gymnastics Australia, one year, it'll only be one year, someone's been seconded, they'll be coming back. Took that opportunity. Was out of work for a little bit of time after that. But again, on the back of work that I'd done, got, a, got an opportunity um, with a, a state sporting body to help them in, implement their high performance plan. That uh, The IS job came up, applied for that, got lucky. But actually, there's another thing. My definition of luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Um, I didn't come up with that definition, but I buy into it. Um, so for me, it's, it's I go with no luck required. And I have failed so many times at so many things, but I just reframe that, you know? I went for a job. It was probably the highest level job I'd ever been for. I got shortlisted, didn't get the job, got good feedback things that I can learn from. And I thought, yeah, you know what? That's my highest ever fail. That's pretty good. So that, yeah, it's the, the approach, the attitude. That reminded me that last part of like, if you're trying to clock a game and I'm talking video games and you almost get to like boss mode, whatever the last thing was. And you're like, oh, that's the furthest I'd gotten. Taking that sort of fun game aspect, it sounds like to how you've approached failure is so refreshing and encouraging to hear like that's the highest point I failed that's awesome because it's led you to all these major successes thank you I wasn't sure what you were going to say to that question and you exceeded what I <laughs> I personally will take a lot away from that and I wanted to ask before we uh, go into the sign-off question is you mentioned earlier some of the different um, like COVID was a problem for some athletes Technically, that was something you're preparing for. And you mentioned for social media and more of the adventure sports is a problem. Why is that unique to the adventure sports? Well, again, I'm not an expert on this, but things that I'm picking up is certain sports are much more high profile on social media. Yeah. So the kind of sports that do have the opportunities to get um, brand recognition and sponsorship, you know, the kind of things that will um, get Red Bull kind of. Yeah. Um, as, a, as a sponsor I don't work for Red Bull that's not an advert <laughs> for some sports I guess the athletes are conscious of well I'm competing against these athletes not only um, in my my sport but I'm also competing for visibility and um, with regards to the people who were who looking at my sport and supporting it and wanting to get information so I guess there's always that peer comparison so for those sports, peer comparison as, as an athlete, but peer comparison as a as brand recognition. And so where's the support for that for them? Um, and we'll have companies who will be, be looking at that. But I guess what I hear from the sport is that can also be a distraction for the athlete. How can we manage that? How can we get it right? So that if we're going to um, try to support athletes in this endeavor, because, you know, in a lot of sports, these are people who aren't getting paid to be sportsmen, even though they're really highly, highly ranked around the world, sportsmen or sportswomen. It's part of the system. It's part of the, the experience, the process for, a, for an athlete. How can we support them so that they've got the best knowledge available? I was talking to an athlete the other day who was saying, yeah, the thing is, he said, you know, I can show them this event that I can that I do and I can show them that event that I do, but um, then I can't show them much else. You know, what can I, what can I show them? Um, I was talking to someone again in America who talked about um, athletes feeling 
that the post has to be perfect. And the message was, no, they don't have to be perfect. Just post, just get it out there, you know, just show them the real, the real stuff. So yeah, there's an opportunity there to support the athletes in two ways, brand recognition, but also what you need to do and what you don't need to do. So you can focus on what's important to your sport. Graham, if you could have just one meal for the rest of your life, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, what is it going to be? I thought you were going to ask me who it would be with. <laughs> People who know me will laugh about this, but my favorite food is potato. <laughs> what form of potato? Exactly. There's so many different ones and I like them all. So it could be mash, it could be roast, it could be chips, you know, it could be thick chips, could be fries, not too many of them, of course. And um, could be could be baked potato. I just love potato. And then it's what you want to have have with it. Um, so yeah, my pretty my pretty standard go-to is um, roast potato and salmon with some nice veg. Yeah. Perfect. You um forgot, not forgot, but gnocchi is technically a potato. It's a type of pasta. There you so go. <laughs> there you go. Well, Graham, thank you so much i've learned a lot i'm really really excited and pumped to get the book and just thank you for finding the time to join me in tall poppy talk today i've had a lot of fun talking to you yeah it's been a pleasure i've enjoyed it myself so thanks very much thank you so much for listening to tall poppy talk we'll see you next time feel free to check us out on socials youtube and the website thanks for today's guest